watching CNN. Welcome to First Move. I'm Becky Anderson in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. President Biden leaving Israel and is on his way here right now as he continues his Middle East trip. We'll bring you the very latest. First, though, Julia Chatley is in New York. Julia. Thanks, Becky. Uh, a whirlwind day, another whirlwind day, actually, for President Biden. And a worrisome new jolt for everyone concerned. We're headed for a global recession. The world's second largest economy, China, reporting surprisingly weak growth for the second quarter. We've also had big U.S. banking results following yesterday's lead from J.P. Morgan, and that means they looked pretty mixed. And the U.S. consumer, however, remains a relative bright spot. All the details coming up. For now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for the Wall Street pre-market picture, attempting a pre-market comeback after five days of losses for the Dow and for the S&P 500, helped along, I think, by some soothing Federal Reserve speak and signs that the central bank not yet ready to hike by a full percentage point at the next meeting despite this week's dismal read on inflation and all the wild speculation in that vein. Meanwhile, U.S. retail sales rising 1% in June, a touch stronger than expected. Context, as always, is key on these things. A lot of the gain coming from higher gas prices. There's no inflation adjustment on this number. So if the prices are higher, it's going to look like more buying. And a busy day on the earnings front. Two Citigroup results coming in market friendly, but Wells Fargo disappointing. And like JP Morgan yesterday, they're saying they're now going to raise the amount of money that they hold in reserve in case some of their lending and those loans go bad. Now, Europe in the Friday fast lane, shrugging off the resignation of Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Draghi dragged back into the fold after the president refused to let him go. I think outside of Italy, never mind internally, there's recognition that now is not the time for leadership change in one of Europe's most indebted nations amid COVID, a pricing crisis and the risk of a winter without Russian gas. We'll discuss later in the show, but truly setting the tone today, China's data deluge. Beijing reporting that its economy grew a mere four-tenths of a percent in the second quarter. That's way down from the almost 5% growth rate reported earlier this year in the first quarter and the weakest quarter, in fact, since the start of the COVID crisis. The investor response, well, as you would expect, negative. Chinese stocks finishing the week down more than 1.5% and heavier losses for the Hang Seng. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, I think we should go through some of the details because it's not just the growth report. There's the contours within that too. Talk us through it. Yeah, Julia, that 0.4% growth for the second quarter, that is the weakest GDP growth since early 2020 when China's economy was virtually at a standstill because of that initial COVID outbreak in Wuhan. Now, what this number reflects, it reflects those harsh COVID lockdowns in several major cities across China during this spring, including that brutal two-month lockdown in Shanghai, which is, of course, China's major financial and shipping hub. So that had ripple effects across the country and across the world. But for From here on out, what investors are focusing on is the future, and it's not looking like a smooth recovery because zero COVID, it is here to stay. And in fact, with this new, more contagious Omicron subvariant discovered in China, well, we are seeing more cities go into either partial or full lockdown. Even Shanghai now is seeing more targeted lockdowns, spreading more fears of a wider lockdown and all of that uncertainty and anxiety. Well, it's bad for consumer spending. It's bad for investor and business sentiment. 
government. Now, if you dig into the numbers further, you notice that there is pressures on all fronts on the economy. There is self-inflicted pain from zero COVID. There's a regulatory crackdown on the property sector, on the technology sector as well, and also social unrest growing from these bank runs in Henan province. And if you look at those property numbers, well, property investment fell more than 9% in June from a year earlier. And in recent days, we have seen people in several cities across China basically refusing to make payments on mortgages for unfinished homes. This comes as there have been more of these delayed and stalled projects because of a cash crunch. And the concern from economists is that if this spreads, well, if threatens financial stability and could also create more social unrest. And this slower recovery, this slower growth in China, well, it has implications for this fragile global economic recovery. China this time around cannot be relied upon to be the global growth engine to alleviate all of the pressures in the rest of the world, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great points in there. Some of these things that they can adjust and they can be less harsh over, whether it's the crackdown in the property sector or the technology sector and some of the big giants there too. But with zero COVID, politically very difficult, as we've discussed many times, to adjust. I think it was Nomura on zero COVID that said there's around 25% of China's GDP now contained in some form of lockdown or heightened control. That's up from 15% a week earlier. I'm a huge challenge. Very quickly, the other thing that stood out to me, Selena, the youth unemployment rate. And we always have to couch data that comes from China in that this is what's the official data versus perhaps the reality on the ground. 19.3% youth unemployment rate in China. That's hugely worrying too, surely. That is a new high record. That number is absolutely staggering. And part of this reason why this number is so high is because of zero COVID that hit the services sector, which is a big employment of young employer of young people. Also, the crackdown on the tech sector, on the education sector. There are also big employers of young people. So you've got more than 10 million college graduates that have walked into this brutal, rough jobs market. And this youth unemployment number is concerning because it impacts skills building, it impacts productivity, and it can put pressure on the future growth potential of an economy. And some experts have put it this way, that what this number represents is that it means basically businesses are not willing to hire new talent, to put investment, to train new people because of all these COVID anxieties. Basically, it makes it a risk to invest in the future. So many pressure points. Selena, great to have you with us. Thank you for that context. And for more on this later this hour, I'm joined by Kevin Rudd, the president of the Asia Society and former Australian prime minister. For now, I'll hand over to you, Becky. And I believe uh, President Biden is officially now on his way over to you in Jeddah. You are absolutely right. Just taken off from Tel Aviv, where in... uh the, or on the first leg of his uh, trip to Israel and the West Bank, he met with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in Bethlehem, where he reiterated his support for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and referred to what he called the indignities that Palestinians have suffered. I know that the goal of the two states seems so far away, while indignities like restrictions on movement and travel or the daily worry of your children's safety are real and they are immediate. The the Palestinian people are hurting now. You feel, you can just feel it. Your grief and frustration in the United States, we can feel it. But we've never give up on the work of peace. Well, the president also said 
He is asking Congress for an additional $100 million in support for the East Jerusalem hospital network. But perhaps what many Palestinians were most eager to hear him address was the death of the Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. The president called her death an enormous loss in view of the importance of sharing Palestinian stories with the world and said the U.S. will continue to insist on a full and transparent investigation into her killing. Well, an empty seat facing the podium where Biden and Abbas were speaking carried a large portrait of the late journalist where she would have been sitting. Other journalists wore T-shirts with her face on them. Well, let's bring in CNN's Hadass Gold, who was in Bethlehem, back now in Jerusalem this hour, and a very poignant image. We heard the president acknowledge the slain journalist. Do you believe that what he said was enough for her family and other Palestinians grieving her murder? Well, Becky, I think he had to say something. He, it was impossible for him to avoid the subject because it was staring him in the face, actually. He drove right by a giant mural on the separation wall of Shireen Abu Akleh. There were signs all throughout Bethlehem, posters up about her with her face. As you noted, reporters at the press conference were wearing T-shirts with her face. They left a seat open for her because if Shireen was still with us, she would have been at that press conference covering this visit as a reporter. So I, it was quite obvious that he needed to talk about it. Also because her family had demanded that President Biden meet with them while he was here on his visit. That obviously did not happen. Instead, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has invited them to Washington for a meeting. And so everybody was very much looking to see what he would say. And I think that they were probably happy to hear him at least acknowledge her, acknowledge what she meant to the Palestinian people. But there's still a lot of frustrations over how the United States has handled this investigation uh, and how it's all come about. And there's questions still about what the U.S. will do further to, for the Palestinians, what they believe is hold Israel accountable, because now the Americans have acknowledged that they do believe it's most likely that an Israeli, it was what it was Israeli gunfire that killed Shireen. Becky? What, if anything, was new in what we heard from either the U.S. president or indeed Mahmoud Abbas? So I think that there were a few moments that were important from President Biden, him acknowledging how difficult it can be for Palestinians. He talked about the indignity of restrictions, the fear of your children's safety every day. Uh, and I do think that it was important to him noting Shireen Abu Akleh. And he was, you know, frank about the fact that while he still supports a two-state solution, that it's not, not, might, not, might not be in the near future. From President Abbas, I, he did call for an end to the Israeli occupation, calling for a capital of the state of Palestine in East Jerusalem. And he talked about several of the sort of items on the list that the, the Palestinians were hoping President Biden would start doing because some of them had been promised to them. Things like reopening the American consulate in Jerusalem that largely served Palestinians. We heard last year several times Secretary of State Antony Blinken say that that's what the Americans wanted to do. We didn't hear that mentioned at all from President Biden. And I also think it's important that President Abbas did say that he extends his hand to the leaders of Israel for peace. That's likely something that the Americans 
Americans and Israelis would be happy to hear. Another thing we learned from the readout, so not necessarily from the press conference, but from the readout from the White House, is that President Biden reiterated his position that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, but that it continues to be the policy of the U.S. that specific boundaries of sovereignty in Jerusalem will be resolved through final status negotiations. Keep in mind that President Biden visited that hospital in East Jerusalem, and it's actually the first time that a U.S. president in recent memory has gone that far into East Jerusalem. And there was a question about whether that was him recognizing Palestinian claims to East Jerusalem, maybe rolling back what the Trump administration did, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Also, several in the Israeli media noted that President Biden's presidential limousine had removed the Israeli flags when they made that visit to that East Jerusalem hospital. But President Biden reiterating that they still believe Jerusalem is Israel's capital. And he was specifically asked about that at the press conference yesterday with the Israeli Prime Minister Yari Lapid asked if the move to if going to East Jerusalem, visiting this hospital, is some sort of recognition of Palestinian claims. And he said simply no. Mm, fascinating. And no word of the reopening, of course, of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, which acts as a de facto U.S. mission for Palestinians. Hadas, thank you. Hadas Gold is in Jerusalem for you. Well, the U.S. president then in the air, um, he will be arriving here in Saudi Arabia soon. It is a direct flight, the first for a U.S. president. My colleague Nick Robertson joining me now with some analysis. And when you speak to people in the Arab world here, Nick, there's a recurring question. What exactly is American foreign policy in the Middle East? Understandably, there's some, been some confusion through Obama, Trump and Biden. They've all made it clear that the Mideast isn't the U.S. national security priority that it once was. So is it clear at this point what Biden brings to the table when he meets leaders from around the region? You know, that's the question they're all asking, of mm. course, because there's a sense that Biden in particular has been absent from the region, in particular absent uh, in giving direction mm. and strategic, you know, instruction to his, uh, to, you know, to people within the administration specifically about Saudi Arabia because he came in saying that he would turn them into a prior state because of their human rights record. All of that baggage but then it does go back to the last president, to President Obama who talked about pivoting to mm. Asia but there's a real sense here that this region in that time span has come alive, mm. is energized is changing. Mm. That's what Obama's going to hear, uh, that's what uh, President Biden is going to hear mm. when he gets here. Um, so they'll say that the region has changed, but we need to understand from you, you essentially, you cannot pivot to Asia without involving mm. the Gulf. We're important partners and players in, in, in economies, in security, in, in global, uh, global energy security, global food security. Mm. So involve us in that conversation, but let us know what it is. So yes, to your, to your point, it, it, it's some been something confusion. of a vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. At the same time, of course, there is a, a real sense of confidence. And I'm not talking around the region because there is some real weakness around the region. But when you're here in Saudi with the oil prices as high as they are, uh, this is a country on the move, as is, of course, Abu Dhabi and, uh, and the UAE, where I live. The discussions about energy, clearly a priority for Joe Biden. But from the Saudis' perspective, the U.S.-Saudi oil for security paradigm is an old and reductionist one. And I steal that line from the Saudi ambassador to Washington, who has written an op-ed in Politico today. They want to see a wider, more nuanced relationship built on energy security, and that includes energy diversification, education, investment in technology, infrastructure, as well as these security guarantees. This is what we understand the region wants to hear 
and get from the Biden administration. To a certain extent, it feels like the White House, the Americans, playing a little bit of catch up on the region. They certainly feel that in Saudi Arabia, and they certainly hope that this meeting will be a springboard to reset partially or get back on track some of that catch-up. You know, you talk about that confidence, and we've both seen it in people mm. here, and we've both had the advantage of having travelled here through the past decade, mm. and we've seen the changes, and I think mm. for an administration that hasn't put a lot of energy uh, and, and time and effort into this region, as people here would like, um, they, they are absent... Of, of understanding how much those changes have happened. And I think you and I have both had those conversations mm. where we heard from Saudi officials, you know, six years ago, we've got this vision, we're going to change the country, we're going to do that. Mm. And we all stood back and said, you know, sort of, we've, we've heard that before. You, you're talking the talk, but let's see you walk the walk. Mm. Well, I think when you and I come back here today, we see the walk is happening. Mm. We see the changes and we see the changes in attitude of people about their daily lives and towards the government. CNN, speaking to officials, um, understands that the White House acknowledges that this trip, the optics of this trip, and let's be quite frank, we've been reporting on this now for, for, for years. Um, President Biden arrives here. He meets King Salman, who is the leader of Saudi Arabia. He then goes on uh, for a meeting with the crown prince here, who everybody will tell you is the de facto leader, um, and his advisers. White House officials telling CNN that that is going to be difficult as far as the optics are concerned. Not in this region, it has to be said, but back home. Yes, uh, and I think also the Saudis recognise that this is a moment where mm. the focus is going to be on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, which the CIA said that the, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for that. They understand here that this is a narrative that persists. They mm. feel it's the wrong narrative, that it misses the point. So I, I think part of that is going to be reinforced. You know, the president gets off the plane. He'll go mm. to the royal palace just down the coastline. There. In fact, mm. we're kind of looking at the complex right behind mm. us mm. over there. He'll go there and he'll meet, with the, he'll meet with the king first. And then he'll meet with the crown prince. But I think the key here is... He's not meeting with the crown prince alone. He's meeting with the crown mm -hmm. prince with the ministers. But what is the real subtext of that message? Mm -hmm. Not that President Biden can't meet with, with MBS, the crown prince alone, but actually MBS is with the ministers that report to him that mm -hmm. he is running the government, he is running the country right now. His father is sort of overwatch, if you will. Um, but that's what President Biden mm -hmm. will get in that meeting, that MBS is, 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 the, per mm -hmm. is the person in charge. And for delegating down in detail, mm. in haste, in a hurry. He wants to get things done in this country to his ministers. So I think that's what's going to come across there for President Biden and the optics of the image mm. there. Whether or not there's a public handshake, which, which both sides are saying don't get hung up about. Mm -hmm. The reality from the Saudi perspective is they think the page is turning. Mm. They think the relationship is going to be good. And to a certain extent, we have heard that from the president himself. Mm -hmm. Nick Robertson um, with me in uh, Saudi. Couldn't do better than I have CNN's international diplomatic editor uh, with me on the show. Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Um, that's it from me for the time being. Um, let's get you back to Julia, who is uh, in New York for you. Thanks so much, Becky. And I couldn't agree more, by the way, about Nick. Thank you. <laughs> okay, let me bring you up to speed to some of the other stories making headlines around the world. It's finally official. Sri Lanka's parliamentary speaker has accepted the resignation of President Gotabaya Rajapaska. The prime minister was sworn in as the interim leader earlier and vowed to protect the constitution and sought to calm tensions by saying he supported peaceful demonstrations. 
Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is asking the international community to officially recognize Russia as a terrorist state. It follows Thursday's brutal missile attack on the Ukrainian city of Vinitsia. 23 people were killed, including three children. Relatives of people still missing are now submitting DNA samples to help officials identify those lost. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move. China's challenge, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd says dire growth numbers are partially the government's own doing, but there's more at play, clearly. We'll explore next. Another transforming economy, Saudi Arabia. Ahead of President Biden's visit, Becky examines the kingdom at a crossroads. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back. I'm returning to our top story now in China's slowing growth in a country where youth unemployment stands at a staggering 19 percent. My next guest, Kevin Rudd of the Asia Society, says some of the problems are of China's own doing, but there are, of course, external influences too. He points to a crisis in the country's property market, which makes up nearly a third of GDP. Investors are spooked after at least 10 real estate developers defaulted on their debts. Then, of course, there was the government crackdown on the tech sector. And the market cap of China's 10 biggest tech firms has plunged by more than $2 trillion over the past year plus. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, sending energy and commodity prices soaring. Bad news for a country that's number one in the world for manufacturing, exports and energy use. And finally, Beijing's insistence on the zero COVID strategy has forced nearly 380 million people into some kind of lockdown since April. The area has affected 45 cities in all, generating over $7 trillion in annual GDP. Kevin Rudd is the president of the Asia Society. He's also a former prime minister of Australia and the author of The Avoidable War, which looks at the risks of a conflict between the China and the United States. Kevin, always fantastic to have you on the show. You were warning about the risk of a close slowdown in China since the beginning of this year, but I don't think anybody expected it to be quite this bad. Surely their prospect of 5.5% GDP growth this year is unobtainable. Well, on the basis of the growth numbers just released for the second quarter, we would think so. Uh, but Xi Jinping, interestingly, um, underlined the fact that China would realize 5.5% growth uh, this year. If that's to be the case, as officials have already indicated, this would require extraordinary stimulatory measures by the Chinese government for the second half of the year to come close to the 5.5% growth number uh, projected. I think the other factor is this. Economists also predict that in order to simply sustain unemployment where it is, rather than have it deteriorate further, they would need at least 4.6% growth for the year. So there is a lot of catch up to do in the second half. So they can be incredibly aggressive about stimulus. They can relax some of the constraints they've put on the property sector, as I mentioned there. They can relax the tech sector, but they're not going to adjust on COVID. And the latest estimates are around 25% of China's GDP again currently under some form of lockdown or restriction. It's a it's a delicate balancing act. And certainly with that latter policy, it's simply not something politically that, that she can change. If we stand back and ask ourselves this question, what's causing the massive slowdown in growth? There are three factors at play here. One is what I describe as a shift in the centre of gravity of Chinese economic policy towards the left over several years now. And we see that through a range of policy measures which the government has introduced. 
And that has, uh, frankly, spooked the uh, Chinese private sector. The second and more immediate cause is what you've just referred to, uh, zero COVID lockdowns and, of course, the prospect of a further repeat of that, at least in partial form in Shanghai now. And the third factor, again, of which they've got no control, is now the emerging shape of the global economy. And China still depends on net exports to fuel so much of its overall growth. What can they change out of that mix? Zero COVID, no. State of the global economy, not so long as Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping's friend, has anything to do with it in Ukraine. Um, but uh, on the first set of uh, measures, which is, or causes, which is his leftward shift in economic policy, I think the only measure that's really available to the government in the absence uh, of large direct stimulatory measures would be to simply take the foot off the Chinese property sector and allow it to resume its normal activity. I couldn't agree more with you. But I also think that when the prospect of further lockdowns and the uncertainty over that is a is a constant knock to confidence for the private sector, for the consumer too. And it's not so easy just to tell people to go out there and behave normally under the under the threat of sort of imminent being imminently being told to stay in your home and, and not go out again for us for several weeks. Well, in all of our economies, whether it's in a communist system like China's or in a capitalist system like there much of the rest of the world, there are two big drivers of uh, growth at the end of the day. One's called consumer confidence and the other is called business confidence. And if you stand back and look at the numbers, uh, consumer confidence, ultimately reflected in uh, domestic consumption, uh, adds up to some 50 to 60 percent of GDP. And then for the business sector, uh, private fixed capital investment represents another huge slab to growth under normal circumstances. So when both those areas are affected by crises of confidence and they depress growth, for the private sector, it's also a question of once bitten, twice shy. And so if there is to be a U-turn or a course correction and some of the left-leaning economic policies brought in by Xi Jinping in recent years, there's an open question as to whether the Chinese private sector would simply say, well, that's terrific, we're back to normal now, or would they say, aha, what will happen after the 20th Party Congress when Xi Jinping is reappointed in October, November this year? Will we then be heading ideologically back towards the left? That's why we have a problem in terms of long-term confidence. I mean, there's so much in there, too. And I also continue to think back to what you said about stable employment requiring growth of, at four and a half percent. And I mentioned in the introduction, they have a, a youth unemployment rate that they admit to, let's be clear, of more than 19 percent now. I guess the big fear is that that President Xi perhaps turns to distractions, whether it's greater nationalism, it's uh, the way that he behaves in terms of foreign policy to, to reassert himself domestically and, and distract from, from some of the domestic challenges. How likely is that, Kevin, and how big a worry is that for you? Well, as a matter of logic, um, it is a concern to many analysts. But as we look forward to the uh, 20th Party Congress this October, November, this is an event which happens every five years, and this is uh, a unique event for Xi Jinping because it'll determine whether he's reappointed for a record third term, thereby breaching the uh, two-term limits imposed upon his predecessors. As we move towards this critical uh, event in Chinese politics, uh, 
most of us who look at these things closely are beginning to see early signs that Xi Jinping's sway over central leadership appointments uh, is still very strong. Mm. His control of the political apparatus, the security apparatus, the intelligence apparatus is formidable. So my argument would be this, even with um, a radically reduced uh, growth number and with rising unemployment, in addition to that, some inflationary pressures within the economy as well. Uh, I do not think fundamentally Xi Jinping at this stage is in real political trouble. Therefore, uh, the necessity to flip the switch to nationalism or foreign adventurism, I think, is reasonably limited at this stage. Yes, by design, that uh, consolidation of, of influence and power to this point. Kevin, always fantastic to get your wisdom and perspective. Thank you. Kevin Rudd, Chairman of the Asia Society and former Australian Prime Minister. So thank you once again. We're back after this. Right, you're watching First Move. In just about an hour, President Biden will land here in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, and he will find a rapidly changing kingdom. The country, of course, known for its oil, but the Saudi Public Investment Fund, for example, is making large strides investing domestically and internationally in a whole swathe of business and industries. Saudi leaders signaling that this is an economy focused not just on oil, but on energy more broadly and the transition to a post-oil era. But as Biden prepares for his first meetings in Saudi Arabia, he will be focused on finding the short-term relief he needs back home. No, I'm not going to ask. I'm going to ask There's the, all the Gulf states are meeting. I've indicated to them that I thought they should be increasing oil production generically, not to the Saudis particularly. Well, Joseph McMonagall is Secretary General of the International Energy Forum. That is the world's largest organization of energy ministers. Members include both the United States and Saudi Arabia. So it couldn't be a better person to ask, what's your assessment of the possibility of Biden getting any short-term oil commitments from the Saudis or anyone else here this weekend? And if not, why not? Well, look, I think it's too soon for any kind of specific announcements uh, regarding oil or, or uh, energy deliverables. But I do think it's important that the top two energy oil uh, producers in the world are getting together. And I think, you know, I think you can, while we may not see something concrete here on oil, we could see a lot of concrete things regarding uh, energy transition, mm -hmm. investment in energy infrastructure. But I think at the end of the day, I think what we have to be looking for here is the, the increased dialogue and coordination between mm. the two biggest energy mm. producers in the world means a lot for energy stability, market stability, and um, energy security. You could argue that in wanting to reduce gas pumps back at home, the prices of, of gas at the pump, the US president lacks an understanding of the way the gasoline market actually works. In the end, am I right in saying this is less an issue about supply and whether there's spare capacity in the UAE or, or Saudi, and more about refining capacity, actually? That's right, yeah. Global refining capacity has actually declined over the last two years, and mm. that's mainly because of decarbonization policies, investor pressures mm. uh, on ESG, but also COVID has really accelerated 
um, sort of capex cuts in maintaining these refineries. Mm. So a lot of them have closed or converted to other uh, facilities. I want our viewers to have a listen to what the UAE ruler had to say on energy security. You made a point. It's less about oil, the story what we're hearing here, and more about energy security, energy diversification. Uh, that's what you hear a lot of. And this is what um, Mohammed bin uh, Zayed had to say just earlier this week in an address to the nation. We will also continue to consolidate our nation's position as a reliable energy provider and support global energy security as a fundamental driver of global economic growth and development. Mohammed bin Zayed will meet Biden uh, on Saturday, along with other leaders of the GCC plus three, that being Jordan, Iraq and, uh, and Egypt. Uh, pledging there to be a reliable energy provider to support global energy security. What did you make of that? And does that reflect a wider narrative here? Yeah, well, look, I think the key word there is reliable. Correct. I mean, I think uh, the world, uh, you know, especially in Europe, had viewed Russia as a reliable producer. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing um, maybe that is not the case anymore. Uh, we're seeing that the, certainly we're seeing the war impacts and sanctions uh, involved in that. And so I think countries now are going to be looking at not being dependent on one mm. source for oil, be and not just oil, all energy, mm. and diversify not just the types of mm. energy sources, but where the, the sources are coming from. So let's talk about that. The high pr uh, price of crude, let's be quite frank, no doubt helping the big producers invest heavily in their economies and in their people. And we see that here in yeah. the kingdom. When, when, when Vision 2030 was launched, quite frankly, the oil price was about a quarter of what it is now. You know, where it is, where it stands today, helps Mohammed bin Salman execute on this vision. The message here is that Saudi is heavily focused on energy transition to a post-oil era. And there is, frankly, some confusion when you speak to people here and around the region about how the West is, to a certain extent, reneging on its climate commitments to move away from fossil fuels, when this region is steadfast about it. You know, they build energy transition into the pillars of growth going forward. Your thoughts? That's right. Well, certainly UAE is one of the leaders where, mm. where your, your home is. Uh, but Saudi Arabia is doing a lot mm. here as well on the energy transition. And I think it's important to realize that, y yes, the, countries like UAE and Saudi Arabia have a very unique role. They have to be trailblazers in terms of the energy transition, mm. but they still have to invest in supply to keep the world power uh, the world economy powered mm. today. So I think it's, uh, it's a unique role. It's a, it's a very good thing that the president's coming here. It's very historic. But I'm not sure we should pay mu as much attention to him being here. There's been a lot going on behind the scenes over the last several months yeah. that I've been privy to. So there's been a lot. I think this is a culmination of a lot of engagement. So let me, I'm going to give you this because okay. I know it's <laughs> gruesome out here. It really is hot, Joseph. So well done. But just before I let you go, so you have been privy to a lot of discussions. You, you, you know, you've got some of these ministers on, on, on speed dial or speed WhatsApp these days. So <laughs> let me ask you this. Do people in this region, do the ministers in this region, quite frankly, feel that the White House and America is playing catch up at this point? Well, to a region on the move? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of countries, not just the U.S. administration, but a mm. lot of countries are playing catch up to um, this whole energy crisis and mm. what spurred it. And... And the world is adapting, and I think we've learned a, a valuable lesson. But mm. unfortunately, I think the second half of this year 
is going to get much worse. I mean, especially on the gas side of things. The, the gas crisis was already in full swing mm. last winter. The war in Ukraine really has just poured gasoline on that fire. And it's affecting other parts of the world. I and mean, we mm. just had Pakistan, who had an LNG tender for a billion dollars and didn't get any sellers for it. I mean, mm. it's just extraordinary. So the pricing is pricing more vulnerable parts of the world out of the market. And mm. so there's a lot of big problems, not mm. just in Europe, but in other parts of the world. Which is why um, having you on uh, our air is extremely useful. Thank you for your insight and your analysis. I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't do anything about the humidity here. Um, uh, no this is a country on the move, but the weather, believe me, uh, uh, remains quite tough in July. But it's, it's great to have you. Thank you very much here. indeed. Well, while energy is a top priority then for President Biden on his Middle East trip, he has emphasized that security and stability of the region is really what is dominating his agenda. He says the U.S. is committed to bolstering security guarantees for regional partners, especially against the threat of Iran's nuclear capabilities. You can read a lot more about that in our Middle East newsletter. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, it's a terrific read. Sign up on CNN.com slash Mideast newsletter. Well, I know you're likely already signed up. If you aren't, Julia. I just did. <laughs> to say. I second that for the second time in the show. Good for you. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Becky. Good stuff. All right. right, we're going to take a break. Coming up on the show, resignation rejected. Instability in Italy yet again. Can Prime Minister Super Mario Draghi survive it? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and an action-packed Friday on global markets. China's growth shifting into a lower gear, but U.S. consumers delivering some signs of cheer. In Europe, Mario Draghi wanting to disappear, but Italy's president extending Super Mario's career. You go Friday, better rhyming for you. That story in just a moment. But first, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. stocks rallying in early trade, clawing back some of their losses from earlier this week. Weak Chinese GDP data out today, stoking fears of uh, more global recession risk. But as JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon pointed out yesterday, the U.S. consumer remains in good health. And this is a strong point, a positive, I think, for investors, too. As we mentioned earlier, U.S. retail sales rising a stronger than expected 1% rate in June. Sales were higher, even when stripping out energy and autos. Bank earnings, however, still coming in pretty mixed. Citigroup rallying after reporting actually stronger than expected earnings. That's the picture. But like JP Morgan yesterday, they're suspending stock buybacks as they navigate an uncertain economic environment. Wells Fargo also higher too, despite reporting uh, disappointing results. It's also boosting its loan loss reserves. Fears perhaps have been worse after yesterday's results coming into these. In the meantime, Mario Draghi remains Italy's prime minister after the nation's president rejected his resignation Thursday. This follows month of tensions within the unity government there and now raises the prospect of early elections to overcome the political impasse. Anna Stewart joins us now. It all rests on the speech in Parliament next week, Anna, by Mario Draghi. But whatever the challenges, and there have been clearly many domestically, and the decisions that Mario Draghi's made, tough ones, I think on an international stage, he's brought a great degree of stability and economic confidence and arguably it's not the time to lose that. 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly why President Mattarella refused his resignation. How extraordinary, given in many parts of the world, including the UK, prime ministers have been asked to resign many times over and have refused. But here we have the exact opposite. Now, Mario Draghi, of course, isn't really a politician, not in the traditional sense. He's not affiliated to a political party. He's a technocrat. He is an economist, and he was appointed to lead a unity government through this pandemic and out of it, and really to implement some key reforms so it could unlock, you know, post-pandemic recovery funds from the EU. And this is a very heavily indebted economy, one of the biggest uh, economies in the Eurozone, of course. So I think the EU will be watching this very closely. And certainly it's got a long way to go on the economic front. I think we don't have to look back very far. The ECB said it would raise rates in July a few weeks ago, and we saw borrowing costs for Italy spike. And if we look at the spread between German and Italian bond yields, you can see they've come up a lot since then, largely on the anticipation of the ECB's so-called anti-fragmentation tool. You can see at the end of that chart, though, that borrowing costs did rise a little bit over the last 24 hours. There's a little bit of a ceiling on that. But you need a strong government. And clearly, Mario Draghi feels that if the five-star party aren't on board, he cannot lead a united government. He made that very clear. He said without the backing of a unity government, he, he didn't want the role because he wouldn't be able to enact the change that he needed to do. Um, and he's a man of action. He's not going to sit there not being able to do anything. And what next? Very quickly. Well, very quickly, yes. What next? If he insists on resigning next week anyway, and if President Mattarella doesn't appoint another prime minister in the meantime, we'd be looking at snap elections in the autumn. So it takes some time in Italy. However, I imagine by that stage, there'll be many calls for the five-star movement to come on board with all this, be brought to heel. Not least because if there was a snap election, they probably wouldn't fare very well. Current polls suggest there would be a lurch to the right. Julia? Anna Stewart, thank you very much for that report there. Okay, coming up on First Move, come fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. If only a spotlight on the summer of travel chaos. Next. Welcome back to First Move. A plane filled with 1,000 bags and zero passengers. That, if you remember, was Delta Airlines' creative attempt at solving a lost luggage nightmare. A sign of the times, for sure. The latest data shows airlines have cancelled over 25,000 flights for August alone. Over 15,000 of those cancelled flights in Europe. And on the United States side, Pete Montine joins us now from Newark International Airport, where passengers have suffered their own fair share of cancellations. Pete, I feel like nothing can be as bad as the July 4th weekend, but I'm afraid to tempt fate. <laughs> yeah, it's best not to, Julie. You know, this is a big hub and a big hotspot for cancellations. Newark is number one for flight cancellations in the U.S. since Memorial Day. Airlines put some of the blame on the federal government. Federal government puts the blame back on airlines. Sort of a combination of factors, but it's really passengers who are caught in the middle. The summer of travel pain keeps growing, with struggling airlines canceling 30,000 flights since Memorial Day. Now, new data shows where issues are the worst. A flight-aware analysis for CNN shows New York airports leading the nation for flight cancellations. 8% of all flights leaving Newark have been canceled since Memorial Day. The pain uh, is not spread out evenly. Some airports have much bigger problems than others. Florida airports take three of the top 10 spots for flight delays. A third of all flights from Orlando have been delayed this summer. This new breakdown comes as passengers are packing planes in levels not seen since before the pandemic. But short-staffed airlines say the federal government is also short-staffed at air traffic control facilities. 
New York, Newark, and Florida uh, really are air traffic control challenges. There's different issues at some other airlines, but those two places are really struggling. The FAA puts blame back on airline staffing issues as well as bad weather and heavy air traffic. We may have to slow the stuff coming out of Florida. At its round-the-clock command center in Virginia, the FAA showed us how Florida airspace can become clogged with flights, like a traffic jam on a highway. If you have a couple of thunderstorms right over the center of the state, now you got limitations on where you can go, especially in the summertime. If you want to get there on time, try to get there before lunch. Airlines argued $50 billion in pandemic aid would make them ready for this rebound. The airline industry is broken right now, and it's failing every taxpayer. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg tells CNN he is seeing improvements, but still expects airlines to do better. Look, we are counting on airlines to deliver for passengers and to be able to service the tickets that they sell. United Airlines says that Newark is bad because there are simply too many flights scheduled here for the airport to handle. In fact, United is even scaling back its summer schedule here at Newark. But this problem goes beyond just here. Rounding out the top five for the top cancellations since Memorial Day, LaGuardia, Reagan National in D.C., Raleigh in North Carolina, and Cleveland in Ohio. Julia? Yeah, Pete, and fascinating as it is and challenging as it is, the challenges in the United States pale in comparison to, to what's going on in Europe at this moment. It, it's so true. You know, if you thought it was bad here in the U.S., really look at Europe, especially what's going on at London Heathrow. In fact, officials there reached out to airlines earlier this week to tell them, stop selling tickets to cap capacity on flights there. You mentioned on the way in the fact that Delta Airlines had this problem with piles and piles of bags, mountains of bags at Heathrow. And they flew this plane, an Airbus A330, earlier this week from Heathrow back to Detroit. No passengers on board, only bags. Delta says now it's going to distribute all those bags to customers here in the U.S. But that's another problem, too. The luggage has become a really big issue. That's what's next, Julia. And the moral, or one of the morals of this story is that precisely, hand luggage only. Pete, we need to know that anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> Great to chat to leave all my shoes at home. Pete Monty at New York International Airport said, thank you for your time. And finally, are we weary of Wordle yet? It's the vocabulary game often played on phones and where you try and deduce a five-letter word in up to six tries. Now, the game's owner, the New York Times, is joining with Hasbro to turn it into a board game which can be played individually or in teams. And you can expect it to arrive in shops by October. I was going to react with the word bandwagon. But I can't, of course, because that's nine letters long. Except I just did. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN for now. Connect the World with Becky Anderson live from Jeddah is up next. I'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.